Northern Rivers Food and Southern Cross University present Business Bites, the podcast series that discusses, evaluates and explores all the factors that contribute to making a successful food business. I'm Angela Caturns, host of Business Bites, and in each episode I'll bring you wisdom and insights from forward-thinking academics and leading industry experts about what really helps a business stay relevant and thrive. In this episode, we're talking about provenance, about why telling the story of the ingredients, the process, the location and the people behind your food matters. Our first guest is Adele Wessel. Adele is Associate Professor in History in the School of Arts and Social Sciences at Southern Cross University. Her research is in the field of food history, and she's written and researched pretty much everything from the history of picnics to Australia's love affair with boxed wine. (laughs) Welcome, Adele. Thank you. Lovely to meet you. So how uh, how did that become your area of expertise? the history of food? I always had an interest in environmental history, so I think that's where it started. I'm as interested in the way that food is produced as, you know, how we consume it and how that's kind of changed. And it really came about through an interest in um, how that also shapes our landscape. So I started talking about tastescapes and the kind of um, choices that consumers make that also impact on the landscape and then went into looking at cookbooks and recipes and so on. But when I was doing my PhD, it was on Australia Day and Columbus Day and what really struck me was that Columbus had really sailed to get a spice to, for the spice trade and a lot of people had kind of taken food for granted and so what I was really interested in is kind of everyday life. All of us eat But the sort of choices that we make are often shaped by cultural elements, what we know, where we live, how much money we have, um, our identity and position, our religion and our culture and so on. So I don't think there's anything more interesting than what somebody had for dinner. It tells tells you a lot. (laughs) What did you have for dinner? (laughs) Last night. Last night I had nothing actually, which is not good. Adele, you can cut that out. That was just um, because I'd been at my daughter's house, my daughter's place, and she just did her driving test, and so we ate lunch very, very late because she was too nervous to eat before that. I see. Did you pass? She did. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Very pleased to hear that. So um, let's talk a little bit more about how food can tell us a lot about history. Um, you know, uh, what's happening in a culture and how food and culture changes over time. Yeah, so thinking about the Northern Rivers, because I've written quite a lot about this particular area, um, it, the the motivation for Henry Rouse actually coming here was to look for fertile lands. So food has been intimately connected from the very beginning of the history of this particular area. And, of course, the land had and country had sustained Um, Bundjalung people as well over thousands of years Um, and the sorts of changes then when people did come up to settle did actually change the landscape considerably. So thinking about something a really important industry to the history of this area like dairying it shaped people's lifestyles, you know, the fact that they had to be at home 365 days of the year and milk every single day. Um, Their families often had to be involved. 
Um, women were also working and milking as well. So there were um, impacts in terms of family and gender relationships and so on. The cooperative that was formed, um, which is Norco, um, that we're recently finding out now is probably going to be closed, um, employed a lot of people. It shaped the community. Um, it uh, changed the kind of social fabric, really, of the towns, butter factories that sprang up and so on. And then as you sort of... The sorts of changes as that industry was experiencing a downturn in the 1970s when new settlers came, um, they were able to make use of those dairy bales to live in and they um, were able to purchase some of the land and then able to develop their own sort of cooperatives and brought with them other ideas around sustainability and environmental conditions and so on to do with to do with the land as well. So in terms of our local history, I think our food history is intimately connected with our local history. I don't think you can talk about the Northern Rivers really without kind of talking about food and the impact that it's had. But it's not just that... Um, food reflects our culture, I think it also changes it too. So when you have, you know, Italian migrants coming into the northern rivers or um, the new settlers or aquarians coming in, then those those bring about changes as well in what we eat and how we eat. Yeah. Um, so what about the early settlers? Did they have any interest in the native foods in the area? So I think that this is a really interesting um, topic because it's been there's been a widespread belief that um, settler cultures didn't necessarily eat native foods, but we know from looking at recipes, newspapers, and so on, that actually um, regional communities did often rely and. Um, had to rely on native foods, but also they had a great interest and curiosity um, with them as well. So something like finger lime, for example, in the 1920s, they were really bemoaning the loss of finger lime. It was often used for its wood because it made really strong handles for tools and so on. Oh, is that right? But people were making um, cordials and things with uh, with finger lime. Back then, Back in the then, 1920s? Yeah. So mm. from, from really, um, you know, the settlers that came in, in, particularly after the 1860s, in this particular area, there are recipes that appear for um, jams made of uh, ribery or lily pilly. Um, wines were made from Davidson plums, um, cordials from lemon myrtle and finger lime. So I think that there was widespread kind of appreciation for native foods, but it wasn't. They weren't sold commercially. Um, the only exception to that really would have been macadamia nuts. But we also know that macadamias were popularised in Hawaii well before they were here. But just in Wollingbar, Wollingbar was the first commercial plantation for um, macadamia nuts. Mm -hmm. And when, when was that um, planted? So that was in the 1860s. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. And 
I mean, I don't know um, if you'd be familiar with it, but a, a lot of people's backyards in places like Lismore will have a macadamia tree. So this was a time when there wasn't a big commercial crop, but I think that there was a lot of local appreciation. Certainly people were doing things with those foods that were familiar to them and they didn't necessarily have knowledge and close contacts with um, Aboriginal communities in order to be able to understand how it might have been used sort of more traditionally. But they were interested, experimented, appreciated those foods. Mm. Is it true that uh, food can tell the story of people and place? Yeah, I I think so. I mean, although some of the foods that we eat are kind of readily available all year round and so on, I think that we're at a point in history too where people are more interested in what's being produced locally and obviously that changes because of the local kind of conditions as well. So some things are going to be more readily available in some places than others. If we're thinking about native foods, one of the really interesting things about Australia is that a lot of the food that was eaten here isn't necessarily available in other places And so people didn't necessarily know what to do with it. But if you think just about the Northern Rivers, something like finger lime only grows between sort of Tweed and not long past Lismore. It's a very small area where it it came from. So there had to be the conditions for it in the soil, um, you know, what else it was growing with, how it was surrounded and so on. The sad story about macadamia is we don't tend to think about it as a rainforest tree, but as the rainforest, as the big scrub was cleared, so were a lot of those sorts of foods as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting, isn't it, about the finger limes, as you say, that um, they've been around for a long time and they were used for their wood. I mean, now they're quite a, a delicacy, aren't they? And we see them at the produce markets. Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the interesting things about produce markets is that you can talk to farmers and also find out how to use them. And chefs have been really important with that as well. So thinking about... Um, Stephen Snow and Finns and so on, um, I think really popularised finger limes, told people how to use it. So it's not always readily available or, or um, obvious how you would actually eat something. Um, but I think that, that I think that that's an important role that farmers make markets actually have as well. You can eat locally, you can support local farmers, you can reduce food miles. But you can also find out the story of those foods and how to use them. Well, and we're talking about stories and provenance of food in this episode of Business Bites. So if, if food tells the story of people and place, why should our Northern Rivers businesses, food businesses, um, tell their stories to their customers? I think the popularity of farmers' markets in the first place is a sign of the fact that people are really interested in provenance. They're really interested in finding out where their food comes from. So that's sort of one aspect of it. But I also think that, you know, in the face of things like climate change and that particular kind of interest in environmental challenges and so on, um, people also want to find out the conditions of that food and the way that it's produced. So um, I remember when the drought was on, you know, which is hard to think about now because we've had so much water, but um, uh, Nimbin, Nimbin Valley rice wasn't able to get oats for their muesli. There were no oats in Australia. Um, the only kind of 
plantations were had been decimated by drought. But finding out those stories is really important. Talking to somebody about why there's so much water spinach at the markets at the moment and learning how to use it and eat it is also a story about building up our own climate resilience and food security for our own kind of region. So I think, you know, that aspect of it is really important. People are interested in the kind of challenges that farmers have, I think, and learning how to adapt and how to be supportive because we do care for the land and I think that farmers are part of that care as well. Mm-hmm. One of the um, issues that you've written about in the past, Adele, is the way major supermarkets have cottoned on to public interest in food that's fresh and local. What has your work told you about this kind of um, consumer demand? Um, well, looking at it optimistically, <laughs> it, it also it, it suggests that they know and understand that people are interested in local food, they're interested in farmers and they're interested in fresh food. And that's great. Um, on the other hand, it's also kind of appropriating that. I don't know if you've been to some of the supermarkets, I'll have the big photos of the farmers or they'll have spreads in their magazines sort of telling the story about those farmers but they don't tell the story about how they get locked into contracts over long periods of time regardless of the environmental conditions and how much is being produced. Um, they don't tell the story about the placement of those um, the, that produce in the supermarket and the way that you know, the cost of real estate, you know, and supermarket shelves. Mm -hmm. So it's really important, I think, for consumers to be educated about what it means for farmers to, to produce food and for us as consumers to see ourselves in some ways as producers that we also impact on the landscape and, not, and on the environment as well. Mm -hmm. And so... Um what are the insights that a savvy business owner should take from this? What should they be keeping in mind as they um, connect and engage with their customers? Um, I think I think it's important for people to be able to tell the story of their farms. So places that um, feature the the actual farm itself, the animals. People are interested in animal welfare and the care of the animals too. Um, I think is really valuable and something that people will often ask about. Um, they also want to know what to do um, with the food as well. So if you're a goat farmer, for example, people want to know, um, you know, how to use it beyond making a curry. Mm -hmm. um, so finding those things out from producers is really important. I remember Nimbin Valley Dairy told me that it used to be quite challenging when you were dealing with consumers, they would just think about cheese in terms of platters. <laughs> so it was just something that you kind of laid out on a tray. But actually talking to people, they, they started producing some kind of cooking videos as well. So talking to people about how to use cheese beyond <laughs> beyond a cold Putting platter. Putting it on a platter, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you can really appreciate it. Um, they all. I think that the other thing is that People want to be able to sometimes combine things. So they're interested in 
if I get this, what else should I get, you know, that will really complement and go with that? Mm -hmm. But people are also interested in the stories. I mean, thinking about Nimbin Valley Dairy, Paul and Kerry have both come from generations old dairying. How is dairying different now, you know, what they're doing compared to what their, you know, grandparents and parents were doing on, on, you know, land in the northern rivers as well? So people want to know those stories. It helps them to connect to their food. And mostly we want to feel good about what we eat, don't we? We know that it's it's more than just sustaining us. Otherwise, we'd all eat insects because they're really high in protein and great for us. <laughs> <laughs> so we really want to know, um, you know, not just that it's good for us, but we want to know, you know, the whole environment that it comes from. The backstory. The backstory, for sure. So I, I think I think telling those personal stories can be really useful, but also telling the story about how where the food came from, how it was produced and what to do with it mm-hmm. is, is really important. Mm-hmm. It has to be truthful, though, doesn't it? I, I remember reading a story, I think it was a beer company, and it was obviously a complete fiction that they'd invented. They'd invented some backstory about the beer, you know, where it came from, how it was made, all that sort of thing. It just seemed it seemed completely fanciful and far-fetched. So I imagine that to tell the story, it has to be genuine. Yeah, I think so, definitely. I mean, the, it's one of the reasons why people like buying eggs, say, from a farmer's market, because the definition of free-range eggs in Australia is so broad and was mostly defined to suit large, very large egg producers in, in you know, huge factories. Um, so, you know, you want to know that the chickens are really outside and running around and that they do get some time in the sunshine and, and get to free range. So I think it does have to be authentic. But the, the valuable thing about eating local food is it doesn't take very long for those stories to unravel if you were trying to, <laughs> trying to pull the wool over somebody's eyes because we know someone who knows somebody, we drive past the farm, we see, we, you know, I think that those things make a bit of a difference locally. Mm-hmm. So it has to be a genuine story mm-hmm. told well. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Adele, a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us on Business Bites. Pleasure. Thank you. From an expert in the history of macadamias to an expert in planning the perfect picnic, our next guest is the founder and marketing director of Blue Ginger Picnics, Tanya Usher. Tanya's business provides picnic experiences using all local ingredients at some of the most beautiful locations in the Tweed. Tanya, hello and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us a bit about Blue Ginger and how important it is for you to tell the story of the ingredients, uh, the locations where the food's grown and and the people who grow it. Well, when we first launched, well, my family first launched Blue Ginger Picnics in 2017, um, my my first decision was that we're only going to serve local produce. And um, even though I know lots of restaurants do incorporate um, local produce, from my research, we were the only operator in the, in the country that actually serves um, 100% local. And that was just something that I decided to do because I love going to the farmer's markets. I love meeting the, the growers. I My husband always jokes and says, how, how can you spend 10 minutes every week talking to the guy who makes the, grows the rocket? I said, oh, well, you know, it's about, you know, how to store the rocket, what he's growing next. And so for me, um, I know storytelling becomes a bit of a, bit of a buzz at the moment but it was just 
genuine, genuine conversations with people who are making and growing the food. So we are very fortunate to live in this incredible food bowl. So there was no reason for me to go and buy anything or source anything from a supermarket when we have the incredible food that we have in the region. So that was, that was just a decision from day one that, that we were going to serve local. Um, I suppose it was strategic because no other operator did that. But it was also because I found a real strong connection to the local food industry. So it, it, it's, it's actually at the very core of what we do. Mm-hmm. And um, tell us, Tanya, uh, about how you um, source all this local product and, and, you know, how you found all these local food producers. Uh, you know, your your list of on the menus is uh, quite a who's who of Northern Rivers food, isn't it? It is. Um, well, I suppose it was because I always went to the farmer's market as a, as a resident of the region. I've lived and grown my children up in the region, so I love – and I've never really been a supermarket kind of person. I don't find that very engaging. You know, you, nobody it's, – it's, it's a rush, it's in and out. So I love going to the markets. Um, I love to know where my food comes from. I, I love to, like I said, speak to the guy who makes the record or the lady who makes the cheese – um, I had an experience the other day where we had some Indian buyers from the Australian Tourism Exchange. We hosted them and they were really interested in local native food. So I went to the markets and spoke to a lady and she had a, um, a lime chutney. And she was, I said, oh, do you sell online? Can, I, can, I, can you be a supplier of mine? And she said, well, actually, no, we don't sell online. I only, I only make these small batches. And the limes came from the lady there that's at that store. <laughs> and... Um, and so the story is really just about a conversation and I, I bought that and served it to these Indian guests and, um, that, you know, that was phenomenal because these finger limes were actually grown from the neighbour's yard. So, um, so to source some of these new foods that I hadn't, hadn't served before, I just, I just went to the markets and had conversations with the, with the growers and then you learn about how to store things, you appreciate the importance of seasonality, um, not buying from you know, goods that are shipped from far distances, you also get the freshest produce that you can have. I've had people say to me that they were the best Dutch carrots they've ever had. I mean, okay, they're Dutch carrots, but, you know, um, they're grown in in the foothills of Mount Warning, all the radishes or tomatoes, um, and sometimes they're not available, and so we have to look for other options. Um, So it's about freshness, taste, and supporting local. You know, our farmers do it tough. So I think we have a responsibility. Well, I, I, mean, I say I have a responsibility. I can't project that on everybody to support and buy local as much as possible because um, it's what our, you know, it's what our ancestors did. Our gra- you know, grandmothers didn't go and they, they went and bought things from the local, the local stores. Mm. Um, and, and so, Tanya, um, do you share the stories of the origins of your food with your customers? I do. It's a big thing that we do. So when the guests arrive, I let them know that they're um, buying, that they're eating 100% local produce and that, for example, we had guests on Saturday and I let them know that some of the goods that they're about to eat, we picked up from the markets that morning. And there's a real sense of, oh, wow, that's really special. It's really important. Even if they didn't come to the experience with that as front of mind or an important thing to do, they leave going, wow, that was amazing. And also they get to try and taste things that they may never have had access to. So, um, and you, you know, if anybody looks at a lot of our Instagram or, or, or Facebook posts, I'm always tagging our suppliers because I really, um, and I do that 
unconditionally. Sometimes they share, a lot of times they don't. They're small business operators who don't have a lot of time. But I do try to tell the story or at least link to the suppliers in case guests wish to purchase things, you know, at another time. Mm. So I do like to share, I do like to share um, some of the stories with the guests because it's it's part of the um, part of the experience. Mm-hmm. You trust the stories. You trust the stories that you're told by the suppliers, the producers. Oh, I'm a very trusting person, but I do. I I, I feel like they're speaking from the heart. They they they've got no reason to to you know say anything other than what's true. Um, and yeah, like I said, I think storytelling is becoming a big thing at the moment in marketing. That. But if we just pair it back and, and just having conversations and, and caring about where our food comes from, you know, I know that people are busy and we've got a lot of, on our plate um, and running through the supermarket and throwing things in a trolley is a way that a lot of people survive. But to slow that down and, and go back to the, the stories of the food that we eat and knowing that maybe this does cost four times more than maybe at the supermarket because of the work that goes involved and they don't have these big, um, you know, manufacturing plants but perhaps having a little bit of the best is is something that we can maybe aspire to and 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 not eat and live so rushed so I I I, I never doubt any of the stories that I hear from the suppliers. I know that your background um, before starting Blue Ginger Picnics traversed marketing and events so was uh, storytelling a kind of uh, skill set that you brought with you? I think so. I've always been a copywriter, so I've loved and I think always a bit of a chatterbox, always used to, um, you know, always used to get in trouble at school for talking too much in class. So I always think that um, telling stories is, is important. My dad was always a good st- storyteller. He'd always tell, tell stories and things would be quite funny and I just always felt that that was a really good way to share messages. So it was something that I just did innately, I, I think, but... Um, it does become strategic. You do tell a story of, of the land and the culture and the food and the, and the destination and also the story of why we do things because from, a, from the front, people looking into Blue Ginger Picnics, they might not even have any idea about the values or the reason why we chose to be plastic-free or that we make out all our own um, tableware and that that all the dishes that people eat from are all hand built in the region and some of them my daughter and I have made ourselves Um, so when you share those stories people have a bit more of a connection with you and the experience just takes it a whole nother level so yes I think it's definitely has was a skill set that I brought with me but it's almost part of my DNA I think. Mm -hmm. And would you say that those stories lead to trust in your brand? I definitely believe that yeah because Nobody wants to be sold to or marketed to and everybody's bombarded with all these messages and these marketing messages. And even now marketing is about storytelling. So it's hard to know, you know, going back to being authentic and true, it's hard to even know whether some of the stories we're hearing are true. So the more the more honest, raw, um, unrehearsed you can be, um, I think just it shares a genuine trust and um, connection and and people, uh, people trust that. Mm. Can you tell us some of the ways that you share your story and, and the story of, of the local uh, produce and the producers with your customers? Sure. So we've just started a new blog. This is not something we've, we've done um, a lot of, but we are starting to, to incorporate some stories of 
our producers there so that people can or guests can read a little bit more of an in-depth story about some of our suppliers. So that's a sort of a bit of a new thing we've done. But from the beginning, it was always about um, telling or sharing with our guests what they're eating, where they came from. Some have a little bit more of an interest than others, so I gauge on the day whether or not they they have an interest in you know where where to go. Others ask a lot of questions about location and where can they find the products. Um, we do have communication afterwards as well to let people know where they can source some of the products. We do drive all around the countryside to find these things, and most guests don't want to do that. That's why you know we have it all centralised. But if they do want to have a drive, we do share where they can access some of the, the goodies, which markets to go to. And certainly we've won quite a few awards. So we share a lot of um, information about our suppliers in our award submissions. So, you know, that gets shared with judges and other, other tourism operators across the country and in, in our blog posts and uh, social media, plus also networking events. I'm often chatting with other suppliers people ask me often you know who are your suppliers and where do you find them so it's it's about conversations wherever possible really mm-hmm. and so when the chatterbox comes out <laughs> how do you um, how do your customers respond to to the produce they're eating and its provenance and the stories that you're telling them oh they love it like i said sometimes they don't know that that's important to them until we share that with them and then they go oh wow actually that is really important um, I've had uh, one of our one of the things that we have is we have a, a cheese that we have a local a triple brie that we put some local raw honey and then well actually topped with tweed pecans and then local raw honey that we pour over it and honestly there's never any less I, I think people lick the lick the board for that <laughs> because it's just they just love it and and people do express how how lovely the cheeses are how lovely the the, the fresh produce is. Um, I think when you bring it to their attention as well, like I could just leave the platter there and let them go on their way, but sharing that this has come from local suppliers, local farmers, I think you've already ignited that sense of interest in their brain. So when they're when they're eating it and experiencing it, they're almost you've triggered that a little bit. So you've you've brought it to their conscious level, I think, rather than just aimlessly eating whatever there is there on the platter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. You mentioned that Blue Ginger's won many awards as a tourism business. How does working with the tourist market as opposed to locals impact on the stories that you share? Yeah, that's interesting. So we do, so as a tourism operator, we do we do um, have a lot of guests that come from all different parts of the country and overseas, but we do have a lot of local guests who want to experience their um, their local region. And that particularly was evident during the whole COVID um, situation where people weren't traveling far and then we had more and more locals and at the stage where we did all have lockdowns and we went to picnic we did picnic at home platters so we would deliver platters to people at home we had people ordering from london singapore all across the country the us and the key denominator was that they loved that we were supporting and buying from local producers to support local during a time when people couldn't get out there so they were separated from families for, for perhaps Mother's Day or Easter. So we would deliver these delicious picnic at home um, experiences for them. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, the, yeah the, the key thing was that it was local. So the locals love supporting local and then the visitors love that we're supporting the local because it's a, I suppose it's novel for them. They get to try things that they wouldn't have otherwise experienced. Mm. Were you actually shipping picnics overseas? 
No, so sorry to, to, to clarify. We had guests, we had people contacting us saying they couldn't come back to Australia for, for whatever reason because of lockdowns. Could we deliver to their families locally? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So we had we had people calling from overseas or booking from overseas, um, and that was all local. So that was you know, and we sold out of all of those, and that was so for us. That was that was actually a, a sort of a, a one small benefit that, that we ended up being really connecting with our local community because they, um, you know, everybody was united. I think about supporting local then. Mm-hmm. And what about um, telling stories about the place? Do you provide a sense of place as well as the stories about the produce that you're serving? So our key value is to reconnect people with um, nature, the food that they eat and the people that they love. So there's those three components to reconnect. Nature is really important. I, I love the idea of barefoot elegance where you can kick off your shoes and, you know, there's magnesium and there's all these nutrients and minerals that come up from the sand or from the earth. So, and picnics come from a French history. So it, it was very elegant back then, although very uncomfortable with their, their, their big gowns, but it was about going out and celebrating food and nature and being together. So we tried to bring that, and I think we've done that successfully, bring that sort of level of, of um, elegance. So yeah, being out in nature, one of our key philosophies is to connect people with nature, the food that they eat and the people that they love. Being, and being out in nature is one place to do that. So I think what separates us from perhaps event companies also is that we don't do lots of flamboyant styling and lots of, lots of plants and lots of props and things. We let nature speak for itself. And so we keep it simple. We have the beautiful handmade, handmade tableware and the recycled barn doors and the local, locally sourced rugs. So all our, all our suppliers are all local. And we might have a couple of sprigs of herbs that have come from the garden. But other than that, we don't need all this big halibaloo on the table because you're looking at this gorgeous view out in front of you. So we are bringing it back to keeping it simple and elegant um, local, delicious, and um, and other people. That's right. They they can do that. They can do all the props. So we don't do theming. We don't. People don't ask for a vintage theme or a boho theme. We have a summer theme, which is our nice blues and whites, and our spring themes, which is our blushes and our naturals, because it's aligned with nature. So I think even our styling is aligned with nature. So it's really about people, food, and nature, and and that's so. And it comes through everything that we. That we do. And so, Tanya, just finally, do you have any words of wisdom for a business who perhaps wants to, you know, build trust by sharing their provenance story? Um, what advice would you have to help them get started? Well, I think it's really about start having conversations with the people that you work with. Well, actually, I think one step back from that is to make a conscious decision that, that su- supporting local and eating local and buying local is important to your business. Because it's not easy to do that as a startup. It's more expensive for us to have had sort of plastic or melamite plates and, you know, cheap rugs and you know, that weren't local. We would have not had as high startup costs. But it, it wasn't the standard that we were after. So you do have to start with the, the core value, which is these are my standards. So any startup who who's thinking about whatever whatever industry that they're in is that they need to say, well, these are my standards. And you can't deviate from those because once you've decided that you only serve local, well, it's really quite easy then. The decision's done. You don't have to then go 
where will I find my supply? I mean, you still have to find your local suppliers, but but the decision decisions made based on the values. So set their strong values to start with and decide if you are going to be plastic free, well, what's your option? Okay, I've got to buy these plates or have the handmade these plates and they're going to cost me $30 each rather than $5 each. Well, then that's just part of part of what you have to do. Um, when I won my first tourism award, um, I, I was very lucky to have won um, three New South Wales tourism awards and then my very first year as a startup, I won silver at nationals, which was quite a phenomenal. And I was there thinking I beat companies like Peppers Resort and Optus Stadium as a new tourism operator. And when I looked at the judges' feedback, it really came back to they, they knew there was a heart in the business. It wasn't written by a marketing company or a marketing agency. It came back to these core values, which, which and I didn't, you know, I didn't understand why if a small business like me could, couldn't, it could implement plastic free from the get-go, why couldn't, why is it taking so long for so many others? That's a big, big conversation. But, you know, if I... And so I thought if I can buy local and, and, you know, and have that sort of extra level of expense or effort because it's not easy to go to, you know, it's easy to go to the supermarket, just throw everything in there and put a platter together and chuck a few packets of this and that on it and give it to somebody. Um, I thought if one person or one small family can do this, then, then others can do that. So for any startup, I, I think go, go start with what's, what the values are, what you really want to stand out for, what you really what you really want to, um, I suppose, achieve in the world, what, what message you want to put out there and and stick with it. And people will rattle your cage and people will try and push you off course. But when you've got your core values and you're living by those, then it doesn't matter. We've had quite a few copycat people copy different elements of what we do, even take things directly from our website and write, you know, implement it in their website. Um, and people said, oh, does that bother you? On one level, it does, but on the other level, I go that that business isn't true to its values. They don't. If they're looking, for, if they're copying someone else or someone else's word, they they really need to go back and look at their branding and look at what they really stand for because because they're scrambling. So I just let them follow their own course. So I think to develop a strong brand is really about starting from knowing what you want to achieve and then just moving from there. Oh, that's a bit of a long long way to answer the question. So. No, but it's a, it sounds it sounds very wise. Tanya Usher from Blue Ginger Picnics. It's a, been a delight to have you on Business Bites. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. We're joined now by the Managing Director of Playing With Fire, Rebecca Barnes. Rebecca's business has been at the forefront of the native food industry for many years and it all started from a moment of inspiration on a simple bushwalk. Hello, Rebecca. Welcome. Hi. So can you tell us the story about the bushwork? Sorry, I'll say that again. Uh, Can you tell us the story uh, about the bushwalk and how it became such a turning point in your life? What happened? So we were just wandering around a a friend's property and we found native raspberries growing. And I didn't even know Australia had raspberries. Um, So that was first learning step. And then why can't I buy these in a shop? Why isn't anybody growing them and doing anything with them? Because raspberries are so beautiful. And did they taste nice? Did you eat them then and there? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so then we had some tests run on them um, and on the leaf as well as the berries and found out they had fantastic antibacterial. They do all the things that other rubus species do, so it's a really great women's herb. Um, and, yeah, off we went from there. 
Mm-hmm. So to where? Where are you now? Do you grow, do you have a crop of them? So we do grow raspberries now. I have about four other growers of, of native raspberries. We have a harvest team that goes around to local um, farms and we do um, lemon myrtle, finger limes, Davidson's plums, whatever is out there, we'll go and uh, harvest and use. Fantastic. And um, tell us about the name Playing With Fire. What's the significance there? So it's really a political reference to how we manage land in this country and how we don't do a very good job of it and that uh, the First Nations people would use fire to farm with and they used fire in a lot of very good ways um, but we today fear fire and we don't use it in in a, a constructive way at all. It's become rather a destructive force. Um, so, yeah, it's really just a, a, a reference to that and um, it's a good talking point for people to start. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm. You haven't always been in the food business, have you, Rebecca? What did you do previously? I was in finance and insurance <laughs> for <laughs> years. That's quite a, a world away. Quite a jump. Yes, it was. <laughs> but a very good jump. <laughs> so, so, so it was there. Was it simply this bushwalk where you discovered the native raspberries that that made you leave so that I, industry? It was post having babies, and I just didn't really want to go back into that insurance world because I'd been I'd worked in London and I'd done a lot of international reinsurance and things. To go back into, I guess, suburban insurance, doing the houses and the cars and things, it just didn't really hold the interest for me. I started at a job and I was in a little office with no windows and all by myself all day and somebody else had the care of my children four days a week and was having all the fun times with them and and I was working just basically to pay that person to look after my children. So I went, this is not where I want to be right now. So then, yeah, just trying to think of other things that I might be able to do and that's when we found the raspberries. (laughs) <laughs> and off we went. <laughs> and fantastic. Also, as you probably know, this episode of Business Bites is all about um, why telling the story of the ingredients, you know, the process, uh, the location, uh, the people behind the food really matters. Why do you think that's important for for, for native foods? It's, it's very important um, because, first of all, not a lot of our native foods are used. We have over 6,000 native food plants in Australia. Is that right? We've commercialised 20-odd of them. So there's a lot of unknowns out there. Um, there's a lot more to be done. Um, it's also it's part of our the oldest living culture on the planet. And um, that's a really important story to, to be told and to continue telling and also to try and get those First Nations people back into the industry mm-hmm. or into the industry to start with. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, are people surprised, your customers surprised, when they hear some of the stories behind the food? Yes, and I think the flavour, um, somehow along the, somewhere along the line, bush food's got a bad rap as not having much flavour and not, you know, not, it's something that you might eat in survival, but it's not something that you'd want to go out and eat. But that's not the case at all. We have the most delicious flavours and the nutrition of the food is every time they do some research work, it just blows the scientists away with the amount of nutrition uh, in these foods. Mm-hmm. So uh, um, do you find your role is one of education as well as storytelling? Most definitely, yeah. We For, for the last 20 years we've been educating non-stop. Um, I still get occasional people along that don't know what a finger lime is, have never seen one, mm-hmm. never tasted one. There's plenty of people who have never tasted a Davidson's plum. Um, so, yeah, it, it's still... 
still that. <laughs> Many years later, we're still teaching the same things. Mm. And so, do you mainly uh, sell produce at the at the produce markets? Um, so we ha- there's a bit of a two pronged approach to our business. Um, we've been a wholesale supplier of ingredients um, for many years. COVID hit that on the head. The restaurants started to close down. Our business really took a big hit in the beginning. So we upped the ante on retail products and started to make a lot more in that line. Um, And that's kind of taken over a little bit at the moment. So we're we're making a lot more products than we used to before. What do you mean by that sort of jams? Um, and Yeah, so mm. jams and and packets of spices and teas Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. vinegars, dukas, yeah, um, lots of different products. Beautiful. And where are they mainly sold? Um, So I do mostly at the markets and we're just starting to move into shops in the region now. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Can you keep up with demand? Um, There's a lot of lines that uh, um, we don't have enough supply of. We certainly need more growers. We certainly need a lot more um, cultivation of the crops and less reliance on foraging. Um, and yeah, so in, in demand is is a little bit fickle. Um, Master Chef, you know, puts on wattle seed, and everybody wants wattle seed that week. So um, yeah, it can be a little bit fickle, but it's definitely on the increase, and it's definitely growing, and a lot more people using all the time, which is fantastic. It is fantastic. Um, and so, are, are, are these plants hard to grow? No, no, especially not if you grow them in a provenance region. They're meant to be there. They have the right climate, the right soils, um, yeah. So no, they're not. We are finding as as uh, climate change starts to impact. Um, so we lost a couple of crops in the recent floods. It sat underwater for a few days, so we had to reject them. Um, and certainly things like myrtle rust, so in the very wet weather, that's starting to impact. So yeah, we are noticing little changes. When we first started, was set and forget. These days, there's a little bit more to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, in in looking after the crops, mm-hmm. and so you've meant you've mentioned um, lemon myrtle, Davidson plum, finger limes. Mm-hmm. They're obviously the most uh, popular and, and the ones with which I'm familiar. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. What else do you work with? What what do you find exciting at the moment? So there's other myrtles, aniseed myrtle and cinnamon myrtle. Um, the aniseed myrtle is becoming very popular. It's also a wonderful natural antidepressant, so it's very very um, good to drink as a tea. Um, there's wattle seed is fantastic. Uh, wattle seed is probably my favourite of all the native ingredients. I just think it's so um, diverse and you can use it in a lot of different dishes. Well, such as? Um, so you, it goes really well with creamy foods. So it's great in a creamy dessert. It's, uh, wattle seed ice cream is wonderful. But you can also use it in like a coconut curry. Um, that mm. sort of thing gives a very earthy kind of flavour. My favourite at the moment, I'm having hot chocolate every night with wattle seed in it on uh, oat milk and it's just really, really yummy. Sounds gorgeous. Mm. And so would it be fair to say, Rebecca, that you've been building an industry at the same time as you've been building a business? We've had to build an industry. There wasn't an industry very much when we started. There was a couple of odd growers here and there. Um, There was certainly nothing defined about it. Um, And yes, it, it Building an industry has been very important um, to educate people, get people interested in growing, getting some data behind us so that people are interested in coming into the industry and become growers and things because nobody's nobody's going to walk in blindly and plant their farm out with something they don't know whether they've even got a market for it at the end. And also trying to encourage First Nations uh, input into the industry, Mm. really important 
Yeah, absolutely. And is there much uh, interest from um, Indigenous local people? So we we ran a survey in um, 2018 and um, that was really a stock take of where are we at in the industry and it was really disappointing numbers that less than 2% of the industry was Indigenous. So we knew that had to change so we set about trying to change that. We introduced a TAFE course in New South Wales which was fully funded for Aboriginal people. We ran it here in the Northern Rivers, but they could come from anywhere in the state to learn about bush food production. And I'm really pleased to say that there's about five or six businesses from that course that have started up and are doing really well. And then from that, other Indigenous businesses have picked up and set up and taken off. Mm. And um, to the extent now that that's a question that we get asked very often is your business Indigenous owned? So that uh, is now relevant to people out there that are buying and I think it's fantastic. You're quite a, a pioneer really, aren't you, in definitely. this industry? Yeah, definitely pioneer. Are you recognised as such? Um, I have been over the years, yeah. I did uh, receive um, recognition in the 2017 Rural Women's Award. I was a finalist for that. Um, so that was really nice to get some recognition there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, and so, obviously, it's kind of, uh, is it your passion to encourage more people now to come into this industry? Oh, definitely. It just, it makes so much sense to be growing and eating our native foods and there's just not enough of it happening. Yeah. So playing with fire sells a range of specific ingredients as well as spice blends. Can you tell us some of the ways that um, you've found uh, to tell their story for this business? I think um, as time has gone on and we have a bit of research to uh, back us as well, the nutritional side has become really important. So superfoods um, and nearly everything they test of ours is a superfood, <laughs> so to speak. Um, so we tested 12 fruits against the blueberry for antioxidant capacity and all 12 of our fruits had more antioxidant than a blueberry. And blueberry was kind of the fruit standard for having because it's a dark, dense fruit. But, yeah, even our finger limes have got more antioxidant capacity than the blueberry. So that nutritional side of it was another angle that people could come in at um, and, yeah, to realise the potential of these foods. Mm. Do you use social media much? How do you get the message across? Um, I wouldn't say I was very good on social media, but I'm... We're getting there slowly. <laughs> um, it's it's an important one. It's definitely any business these days has to have a social media account. Uh, and, yeah, we're trying. <laughs> yes, fair enough. Are you finding anybody's kind of jumping on the bandwagon a little bit of Indigenous food sort of? Uh... McDonald's, maybe? Really? So McDonald's have recently bought out, they're calling it Australiana or something, coffee with wattle seed in it. Um, my friend, I haven't actually tried it yet. My friend who's in the industry tried it and did a, a review on Facebook only yesterday. Unfortunately, uh, she can't taste any wattle seed in there. <laughs> How interesting. So where would they be sourcing their wattle they, seed? So that was one of the questions that was asked straight away. Where, where did you, that would be a lot of wattle seed, one you would, would think imagine. So. Mm. Um, so, and they say indigenous source. That's all, you know, all we know. So we don't know where, exactly where they've got it from, but they say they bought it through indigenous um, supply. So we can only hope that is the case. Mm. I mean, so obviously honesty and a real true story is important, especially in your business, Playing With Fire. Mm -hmm. Um, How can you ensure that, you know, the stories 
that are being told are are true and authentic. It's, it is a bit of a problem. Um, there are there's a bit a little bit of confusion out there around some of the plants and the foods, and some people do spruik incorrect information. So we just quietly go behind the scenes to try and correct um, that and get them if they put something up that's got totally wrong information to take it down. We're also, well, me personally, I'm not encouraging too much of foraging. I just find it a little bit unsustainable. Um, and when you have, you know, in our area where we've just been hit with a natural disaster, I, I don't think you should be going out there foraging at all for a long time after that to let everything recover and rebuild, etc. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think... Um, it's, it's a difficult one to know how to keep the stories true. It, it really is. Um, and, yes, some unscrupulous un people will, you know, try and make it to their ad advantage. Uh, I think generally most players in the industry are, are pretty good. Mm. And what about the customers? Are they uh, concerned about, uh, you know, authenticity? Definitely it's, it's becoming a concern. And, um, yeah, they want to know more and more where have I sourced this food from. Um, how was it uh, harvested, you know, that, that kind of thing. And the organics of it is starting to come in. We've never ever been asked any of that before, but now it's starting to come in. I do use pesticides. And so the things like the native citrus, well, some of them, yes, they do use pesticides the same as they do um, with the other citrus. Mm -hmm. And so now what about COVID, during COVID? Um, did that have a big impact on your business? Huge. So in the April of 2020, we went down to 10% of our turnover, which was very scary. But that was really because all the restaurants and things got shut straight away. So there was nobody buying anything in, at that particular time. Um, the farmer's markets really saved us during that time and they picked up immensely. And, uh, and that's where we started to then, you know, make more products um, to get into shops and things like that because we didn't know when the restaurant trade was going to come back mm -hmm. and how long it would be out for. Mm. Would you say that people, uh, people's buying habits changed and, and uh, they were concentrating more on buying local? Yes, definitely. And as the supermarkets ran out of, of goods, and so there's a little bit of it happening now with... Um, you know, the winter cropping and things that didn't happen, the farmer's markets are getting very busy again um, because the supermarkets are running out. Mm -hmm. mm. And so um, I guess just finally, uh, and looking back over your business career, you've seen consumer interest in native foods change and grow, develop since you started your company, Playing With Fire. Do you have any words of advice any pearls of wisdom <laughs> for others about how or why they should tell the story of their food? Um, I think it's a really important... It makes your food more attractive, that's for sure, if people know the story behind it. Um, but it, but it's also... It, it just gives you an understanding or people an understanding of where this food has come from, the history of, of the food and the work it's taken to put that, that plate on your table uh, and that, yeah, it's just not somebody going out and picking a few greens and, and throwing it on a the plate. There, there is a whole industry behind it. There's years and years of learning. There's lots of, um, of, of people having to collaborate and work together and yeah, build an industry. To, and, to get it happening. And that story's worth telling. Definitely worth telling. People want to know it too these days. People are more interested than ever, um, particularly in native foods. And I think 
Um, so some of the, the more successful restaurants that have, have uh, been around, so Joxon Frillo's restaurant in Adelaide, Orana, when, you know, that was not just going there and eating the food. That was a whole experience because they came out and talked to you about the food for every single dish that was put in front of you, where it came from, how they made it, um, and, and the traditional uh, uses for those particular foods as well. So, yeah, it's not just eating a meal. It's a whole experience and a learning curve. Fantastic. Rebecca Barnes from Playing With Fire, thank you so much for joining us on Business Bites. Pleasure. Thank you. This episode of Business Bites featured three talented and insightful guests, Professor Adele Wessel from Southern Cross University, Tanya Usher from Blue Ginger Picnics and Rebecca Barnes from Playing With Fire. They helped us explore why telling the story of the ingredients, the process, the location and the people behind food matters. The Business Bites podcast series is a collaboration between Southern Cross University and Northern Rivers Food. Southern Cross now offers the new Bachelor of Business and Enterprise at its Lismore campus, and for the March 2023 intake, the university is offering a scholarship worth $5,000 to every student who enrols. This new degree can help the brightest commercial minds to stay in our region. Perhaps that's you, someone in your business, or someone you know. Find out more at scu.edu.au. Northern Rivers Food is the region's not-for-profit, member-based food organisation. Established by people from the paddock to the plate, Northern Rivers Food supports and connects people in the industry, developing skills and opportunities, and celebrates the unique food of our region at every turn. To get involved, visit northernriversfood.org. Business Bites is proudly funded by the New South Wales Government and I hope you'll join us for the next episode. I'm Angela Caterns. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.